the war rallied European nations. The very fact that you cross the borders, that's not admissible in the modern society. Wars were relatively less than what they had been in recent history. A little bit of inflation, that's excellent, that's fine for society. Diversity brings ideas, ideas bring technological progress. Hello and welcome back again to this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. In today's episode, I sit down to talk with Dr. Alexander Mihalov to discuss his research on the changing public sentiment towards the EU, the economic impacts of the Ukraine-Russian war, as well as his other research pertaining to the changing relationship between house prices and real wages in the UK. Alexander is an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Reading, the Director of the Group for Economic Analysis at Reading, GEAR, and holds a PhD in economics from the University of Lausanne. As ever, reference research material will be included in the description down below. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Enjoy. So this paper uh, is um, a little bit um, strange or accidental by its original birth, because the original intention was a different one. And it just happened so that while the survey was in the field, the war happened, and we could infer by answers before and after the war, which were roughly distributed half-half, we we, we, this, this gave us a possibility to infer from this sort of natural experiment how opinion changed within the same kind of people. And that's what we exploited in, in the study. But in fact, the um, original intention was to see to what extent um, beliefs and views and values of students change when they go away for a semester uh, according to the Erasmus program, which is about exchange of students in their undergraduate years, usually. And the, the advantage of, of going abroad for one semester is that you can learn an additional la language or consolidate it, but even more important, you you meet um, different people, you are embedded in a different culture, you have to adapt to that. And so generally, uh, we wanted to produce a paper which shows that people become more uh, tolerant of each other, more open-minded after a stay abroad. And we even had a title. And because the Erasmus program is called uh, under the great Dutch philosopher and lightener Erasmus, we had a quote from Erasmus, who says, give light and darkness will disappear of itself. So the idea was studying students before they went on an Erasmus travel and after that, and asking them, them questions about uh, their values, including uh, regarding the European Union and, and European integration. So that was the questionnaire. We had these European questions in, in the questionnaire already, but the intention was a bit different. And so what our paper, after all, became is what is known now as um, unexpected event during a study. So we had a study. It was two waves. The first wave was in May 2021. The second was in February, March 2022. We had collected the first wave, we wanted to collect the second wave. So first wave is before you go to Erasmus abroad, second wave is after. And we wanted to check to what extent values and beliefs uh, and opinions change. Now, with the second wave on the 24th of February, the war uh, happened. 
and we had about half of the sample, which is our sample is a little bit more than a thousand students from 11 universities from a from 19 countries by country of origin. So it's quite a representative sample. Half of the answers were before the war happened and the other half after the war happened, which is a good a good split of opinion. And then we ran statistical econometric procedures, uh, generally um, different uh, equations to test robustness. And um, we had this dummy variable, which uh, becomes one after the war started, which uh, which allows us to set apart the opinions before and after and how much they changed. And we generally had several dimensions asking students uh, on different aspects of European integration. I'm going to check them and be very clear about that. So do you mostly think of yourself as a citizen of your country or as a European? And that is on a scale from zero to five. And then we rescale from one to from zero to one in order to make uh, uh, inference, which is easier in, term of, in terms of percentages. So the first question, I, I just read it out. The second one, these are, so there is a subset of seven questions which relate to European integration and the European Union out of other questions. We didn't use most of the other questions because the focus was on how the war of Russia and Ukraine affected attitudes towards the European Union and the values that we, we link to it. So the other questions roughly are, how strongly do you feel attached to Europe? How close, closely do you follow politics at the EU level? Generally speaking, would you say that your country benefits from or does not benefit from being a member of the European Union? Generally speaking, would you say that you personally benefit? Then my country should provide financial support for the EU member states experiencing great economic and financial difficulties. And finally, should European unification be pushed further in order to establish a joint government soon? And we generally uh, compared the people who answered before and after the war. And we generally found, um, I have a graph here, which we may attach in the podcast, which shows uh, three different models. The full model is the, the richer and most realistic model. And we measure how many, uh, how big was the particular change on each of these seven questions. And for example, in most of them, uh, the variation was, so the, the support for European institutions was up by three to 4% up to 10%. And given that the standard deviation of the opinion in the different uh, questions of um, the respondents is about uh, 0.24. So when you relate 0.10 to 0.24, that our our methodology in fact captures and explains like uh, something like uh, four tenths of 40% of of the change in the opinion. So it's 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 very sensible in economic magnitude. And it's quite um, it's quite robust to um, to the different um, variations in the model that are in the paper, and along all of these seven dimensions, it, seven dimensions, it is statistically significant, with a little bit of a marginal significance, mostly on the personal benefits. So that's also important because what students see as valuable in the European Union after the invasion happened is that. Uh, a small country cannot be um, guaranteed uh, autonomy from such invasion from a big neighbor who is aggressive, just like Russia. So the reasons for aggressiveness 
can have different explanations. And of course, the Russians have their own viewpoint about the history of Ukraine and Russia, etc. I'm not going there. But the very fact that you cross the borders, that's not admissible in, in, in the modern society. So, um, so the value of the European Union as we capture it uh, in, the in the responses of, of the students is associated with common, uh, with public good, common good values, such as common defense, common um, European area. And, and so the, the personal uh, aspects are mitigated and, and the, the community aspects, the values of the European community, such as democracy, such as uh, integration, which makes, of course, uh, economic integration, exchange of, of goods, people and, and financial services makes our life uh, cheaper relative to um, deglobalization or fragmentation or, or dividing the world into friendly and unfriendly countries. Um, pr pr protecting trade, putting obstacles to trade. So, so that's the major finding that um, the war, and that's our title, the war rallied European nations. These are students, but then the Eurobarometer, which issued in the, which was issued in the summer, so a few months after our first analysis of the results, confirmed that it's not just the students' subsample of the society; it's broadly all uh, European countries have the same sentiments. So basically, uh, this is the title, the rallying around the flag effect. And our, our paper is in fact um, interesting and novel in the sense that previous work on rallying, rallying around the flag has been um, investigating uh, the national flag. The literature emerged in the 70s in, in the United States by a scholar called Mueller, whom we cite in a book. So the rallying around the president effect was related to events in the US in the 70s. And um, what is interesting and novel in our analysis is that we now have a supranational flag. We have the European integration, the European Union, and um, feeling this common threat which, which was uh, materialized by the war of Russia and Ukraine, other European nations, especially the, those who are direct, uh, direct neighbors to Ukraine, such as Poland or Romania, students and, and population in these countries felt uh, this fear of something similar happening to them. And they, they realized even more, even more so, they realized how valuable it is to have a union which protects your common interests in the economic and the political sphere. Yeah, because that's actually one thing that I wanted to, well, was going to be my, one of my first questions to you. Obviously, the research in this instance is focusing around Erasmus students. Um, and obviously, just focusing on one um, body of people can be very useful in terms of research and isolation. But it sounds as though as well, from the extended bits of research that you conducted and the work that you did, it, it is reflective of a greater public um, opinion, not just the Erasmus students or people of um, that age demographic as well. Yes, that's correct. And it's not in our paper because you're right. Our sample is limited to these Erasmus students, which is a population of a little bit more than a thousand individuals who went abroad on an Erasmus study. But the Eurobarometer, which is a regular um, uh, survey published by the European Union, um, which was issued after our our first analysis of the results in the summer of 2022, in fact, confirmed that uh, what we capture is not typical only for the young population. Generally, students tend to be younger, uh, more educated, 
more acquainted with European values, especially more so after they have been on a, on an Erasmus semester abroad. So in a sense, students would feel uh, more favorable to the European Union and less favorable to aggression at the start. So because of that, maybe our results could have been interpreted as limited, but in fact, Outside our paper, the Eurobarometer confirmed that the general sentiment that we captured does not belong just to the students, it's broader in, in the European Union countries. Yeah, and I think just looking at this as well, this research intuitively as well, obviously you didn't intend to set out to, to be so Russian-specific in terms of like the consequences of that invasion of Ukraine. However, I think it's quite, like I say, quite intuitive that with such an event that's occurring, which is crossing borders in Europe that have been you know, de defined by international law for at least some time anyway, that there would be uh, a reflective response from the general population of Europe that they probably have greater sentiment towards the EU that is part of its institution is to set those borders essentially and uh, amongst its other uh, properties and you know, finance and political um, cohesion as well. So intuitively, I do think that kind of makes sense well, and it does track as well. So our questions captured mostly um, issues that relate to economic integration, uh, so the, the economic part of it, and less political union. But in fact, in the background, there is this political union as well. And that we can see that as well confirmed by what happened to the NATO expansion. So in fact, uh, Putin was concerned about NATO, NATO coming too close to, to his borders. And that was one of his motivation behind the attack on Ukraine. And on the other hand, this act provoked the opposite effect. And so in a sense now, with Finland and Sweden joining, uh, NATO has been expanding. And, and that is because uh, the uh, direct neighbors of Russia, such as Finland and very close Sweden, they, they feel threatened by what happened to Ukraine. And it's only natural for them, being a much smaller country, to, to look for protection in, in a big uh, political and military alliance such as NATO. And so what we capture is mostly in the sphere of economics and economic in integration, but it also extends to, to political union and to military defense, which uh, people now realize it's very important uh, to have it uh, in order not to be attacked as, as, as Ukraine was. Yeah, it is interesting to when you think about, well, not that anyone can definitely say what the motivations were for you know, the creation or the, the, the initiation of the conflict. But one of those big reasons is obviously NATO and, you know, those borders of NATO coming nearer and nearer to Russia. And particularly with Finland, I think, as, as an example, who quite, you know, literally has a, a very long border with Russia that has extensive influence over the Baltic Sea, which is one way in which you would go... Um, <laughs> Something like 1,300 kilometers, I think, is the yeah, the so border between Finland and Indeed, and, and Russia. a border as well that is, you know, it's not like it's roads and that there are obviously infrastructure there, but it's vast wilderness, wilderness that Finland has a yes. lot of experience in, um, as well as Sweden, obviously, in those climates and those borders as well. Lakes and, and forests. Absolutely. And quite frankly, as well, St. Petersburg, which is, uh, the, I think, I believe the second largest. Uh, second largest city in Russia, you know, miles essentially from that border as well. It's, it's it's interesting to see how that's really shaking out in terms of the political economy of Europe and, you know, if that was their intent to keep NATO at bay and how it sort of reversed around on them. 
I think. Um, but it's interesting as well from the standpoint of like you know the the students as well with the the economic impacts as well. What 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 were the sentiments of the students in terms of the actual economic side of it? Was there I don't know whether your research touched on you know the importance of the economic impact of including European states as well. Um, it just being able to like for example the free movement of people. Um, was there uh, a sentiment that they really it was really really important for those European countries that are perhaps relatively smaller than let's say the United States or Russia to aggregate to be able to compete economically? Yeah, we had some questions which were. Um in a sense, uh, quite provocative, for example, whether European unification should be pushed further or we have gone too far. You know, that has been quite a debate on that recently. And um, the opinion of our students, especially after the invasion of Russia in Ukraine, is definitely that they are very much supportive. Um, for example, I can um, relate to, to the numbers that we quantify. Um, so about 8% of, of um, increase in the opinion in favor of um, further unification. Then we had a question which asks, would you, would you support if your country financially supports a country in economic or political trouble, like we now support Ukraine? So again, students were very much uh, clear and um, undivided. And, and there is another percentage of increase, which is 5% here, according to, to our measurements. Um, in favor. So definitely on issues that um, the European Union stands for or symbolizes, basically no borders between uh, a mosaic of countries inside the continent of Europe, easy movement of goods, services, financial services, people. That's the, that's the, that's the concept of, of the European Union. And it's, it's important to note that the the fathers of the European Union back in right after the Second World War in the beginning of the 1950s, Jacques Delors, uh, Monet and, and other French politicians, the idea was that the European Union would prevent any future war in Europe. This is the grand design behind the European project. And I very much admire it and, and stand in favor of, of a united big Europe, which is influential, which is um, an equal partner in global politics to the United States, to China, to Russia, because you, you, the European countries are small enough, even France or Germany, to, to stand alone for Europe. And so the big project after the Second World War, and that's the big surprise, I never expected a war in Europe. And the, the, the project of the European Union was meant to prevent such a war. In fact, it couldn't. And so this, this emphasizes again how much important for the students and for the populations in general is to to keep the European project, to keep this achievement over, uh, that's now like 70, 75 years. It's uh, it's unique experience. It's it's very important that the project is preserved, that we that it continued to it continues to to defend democracy and economic freedom, because that's then well-being. That's then translated into into um, cheaper cost of living, uh, easy movement, uh, exchange of beliefs. People know each other. People are not scared from the other, from the foreign. And that was the idea behind our project uh, more, more generally. It ended up in, in exploiting the event that the war happened. And this allowed us this sharp contrast to, to exploit 
the answers of the people before and after and to infer such um, important um, conclusions regarding the European project. Yeah. And of course, as well, looking at Erasmus students or at least students, it's at least a greater indication of what potentially sentiments and beliefs and feelings are going to be moving into the next several decades. Because, of course, you know, that's the generation that's going to persist over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. In, and are going to come into you know, political office, um, but also have those influences as, as voters as well. So it's interesting as well to see that if sentiment towards the EU, for example, is trending even further upward um, amongst European uh, citizens um, than even was before, how much more of an influence it will have. And perhaps there will be more of a sense of European um, identity as opposed to individual country identity, for example. So I do think we feel, sometimes forget that the European Union actually isn't that old. Um, I, I don't know, can't exactly remember the, the exact date of it, but I think it was initiated late 70s or something along those lines. The European Union. The Treaty of Rome, which is the predecessor, is 1957. Ah. But, but plans about establishing it start right after the Second World War and in the early right. 50s. Of course, because obviously the planning of actually sort of initiating a, a project or creating such a, a European Union as the one we have is obviously in response to, as you quite rightly say, trying to prevent any further wars in Europe, you know, having, you know, not one, but two world wars in within the space of, you know, yes. um, a century with it on the European continent, I think was just on the minds of every single politic, political leader in Europe. Like, okay, this is the set, we thought we were going to only have one great war, we ended up having another, we need to find a way to mitigate this. This was my huge disappointment. I thought Europeans have learned the lessons of exactly what you say. Two devastating wars, uh, neighbors killing each other. And, and then, even during the Cold War, we managed to, kind of the world managed to, to, to not provoke another terrible, devastating, final nuclear war. And I thought that the war is in the past. And to my great disappointment, war returned in Europe. It's, I, I didn't expect that, honestly. I, I'm kind of old now in my mid-50s and I thought I would never have a war, an important big war in Europe in my lifetime, but it happened. Well, a question really is in terms of this, although Russia is a, well, at least the eastern part of Russia anyway, is a European country. They've never really participated or have been seen as a, a, a European country in the way that Poland, Germany, Britain have been. And of course, Russia is not a part of the European Union for, you know, <laughs> as... Yes, I think what explains this is their huge mass of land that they have in Siberia. So they, they have always perceived themselves as a superpower, but perhaps equal to US in global politics. And they have always had this uh, kind of feeling or, or mentality of, of a big player in global politics. And yes, they, they would not consider themselves part of Europe because in fact, maybe territorially, they're even bigger than Europe. So, okay, that's fine, but you have no, um, you have no reasons, you have no logic to, to change the, the rules of the game of the post-war peace and, and to, against international law to, to invade and to, to pass um, national borders that have been established and that are there to stay. 
Yeah, I guess. Well, the thing is with the European continent as well, I think it's important to acknowledge it's not as though the current borders have always been the way they were. Throughout the you know 2,000 years of, sort of documented European history, borders within Europe have ebbed and flowed and changed every 10, you know, 10 20 years on a multitude of countries. You know, Britain occupied a lot of France at one point. You know, the Rhineland is in, in Germany, so a very hot this or is this French, German? Is it is this another country's um, as well? The Napoleonic Wars as well, when they went over and fought even as far as as Russia as well. So I guess just to provide like a little bit of counter to that, although I'm not, I'm not necessarily I'm not obsessed by the idea. The, just because these, uh, I guess from the Russian perspective, just because these borders and lands have been established potentially in relatively recent memory doesn't necessarily mean that those borders um, are culturally historically representative of the nations within those countries. I mean, this is kind of what we're seeing in regards to Ukraine, right? What Russia is now saying um, for a while is that the western part of, sorry, the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, whether that be the Donbass, is more ethnically Russian than it is Ukraine. And as such, annexing those is, you know, in within the actual pub the public's interest of those regions. And if you go by the uh, the votes that they're conducted in the re those regions, it would be representative of that. That being said, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I think I don't think anyone's really buying the fact that those were democratically held elections in those, and referendums in those regions. And it's actually the same thing with, with Crimea as well. Back in 2014, there was you know the reasons Russia um, that ethnically they were saying that you know this is more Russian than it is Ukraine, and there may even be some argument to that. I would still personally fall down on this perspective of. Russia is a very, very large nation, given for a very large population, you know, 150 plus million people, I believe, but land-wise has inordinate, you know, land and resources. And so from a standpoint of, you know, we, they had the Soviet Union and where they are now, I don't think, <laughs> don't think it's in the best interests of them, of them economically um, and their cohesion with the rest of the world to disrupt those borders. And that is why the, the EU was essentially like came in to do that it was to right okay these are our these are the borders now uh within these european country member states everyone's going to accept them and we're not going to have any more wars hopefully fight for over these borders that have been heatly contested in the past um but to an extent though i think the eu was always slightly limited in the fact that the, of their ability to do that because well without russia joining the eu and i think even now, I think that's probably even less likely than it was, you know, 50 years ago or however, you know, when the EU, the, the idea of the EU was first initiated. I think the only time that you're, ne you're necessarily going to have that is if, if Russia were to join the EU, which I don't necessarily see being on the cards. Uh, I very much agree with what you say. And I have, um, I guess I have two or three points perhaps uh, linked to the notion of borders. First of all, inside the European Union, I think, the idea was to ignore the borders, to eliminate the borders. Fights between European nations over millennia and centuries have always happened because of, as you say, fluid borders, fluid ethnicities, that's true. In fact, uh, Eastern Europe, the way we know it now, didn't, didn't exist um, before the First World War. Yeah, absolutely. So all these countries, including the, the huge country such as Poland relative to the others, 
Czechoslovakia, Hungary, these countries were shared by three empires, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, and the Russian Empire. And in fact, the German and the, and the Russian Empire had a common border somewhere uh, in the middle between themselves, which is now Poland. And so both nations, in a sense, tended to neglect the right of the Polish people to have their own state. So, uh, you know, the, the Ribbentrop-Molotov um, Treaty, uh, which uh, was a secret treaty that between the Nazi Germany and, and Soviet um, the Soviet Union, that in fact split Poland between uh, Nazi Germany and uh, Soviet Russia. So um, I thought that the future, at least in the European Union, and I would hope that this would expand to the global world, is that we do not have borders anymore. We are free to cross borders. We are free to be educated or work in a different country, free movement of goods, capital, people. I thought, I believed this idea of globalization, which tends to produce a relatively cheap um, um, cost of living. So uh, compared to a world which fights, which which is opposed to each other. So my first, uh, first argument uh, related to borders is that we should not have borders anymore. We, sh we should think of the global economy. We are in the same boat. We should preserve the diversity. We should cooperate with each other. That would improve the lives of everybody. Why are we going back to fighting? Why are, haven't we learned our lessons? And the more so in the European Union, because I mentioned this project was, uh, was had, the, had the, the great idea of stopping wars in Europe. Then the second idea on borders is every nation, if, if a nation looks back in history, can pick up the, the biggest map they ever had. Think about the Roman Empire. What will happen if the Roman Empire or Italy now claims all these territories around the Mediterranean or any other country at some point in history had a map which is perhaps twice or three times bigger than it is? So again, this cannot happen anymore. And instead of fighting and, and dividing the continent and the globe into borders, why don't we, as the European example had shown, eliminate the borders, create a common territory, move around, enrich each other, enjoy and work and, and have these freedoms. And I hope that the globalization was moving in the same direction in the world before, again, uh, some recent tendencies, um, in particular the war that stopped globalization, that now economists and politicians are talking about deglobalization, about um, uh, fragmentation of the world economy, of world polit politics, splitting up into friendly and unfriendly countries. And this makes our life much more costly, even if we have observed recently with, with the cost, cost of living crisis, energy, food, etc., if we have a free global trading economy, every product will be sourced where it is produced with comparative advantage in the cheapest way, and people will be consuming at a smaller cost. Once you start creating barriers, trade barriers, and especially wars and embargoes and things like that, the cost will be easily doubled and, and trebled. So um, I can understand some historical arguments that the Russians suggest, but... Um, but this, I think, is not admissible in the modern world. This is not admissible in the 21st century. I thought the 21st century 
would, would be a century where we cooperate, we talk to each other, and we solve any problem on the negotiating table rather than using these uh, archaic uh, methods of, uh, of the, the stronger country, the bigger country invades the weaker one. And I hope that there is some international protection like the United Nations that could stop or block that. It turned out that's not, that this is not possible. Which leads me to um, another paper I have, and it's, it, it relates to education. I think it all boils down when we are in preschool and school age, and when we go through high school and university, it's very important that during our education, we can see different viewpoints. We can experience different cultures. We should study not just Christianity, but also Buddhism and Chinese religion and Islam. And so this other paper that I'm citing, it's discussion paper in Keio University with the Japanese professor Masao Ogaki. It's a very sm small, short theoretical note, but the main argument is that one way to improve the world, preserving diversity, and because we are diverse, we create ideas and that brings innovation and technological progress is not to, uh, when we go to school, we should be taught uh, a, a multicultural version of our world. So I, I know, I mean, in the past, most European nations would idealize their history, would show their greatest achievement, be it Britain or France or Poland or Italy. And I think that it's time to replace this kind of nation-centric, nationalistic education into a global, uh, multicultural, open-minded education where we are experiencing the beliefs of others and we are seeing that, that there is nothing uh, dangerous or, or wrong if you have a different religion or if you have a different color or if you are born in a different locality or neighborhood. So the idea would be to, to educate people, instilling uh, beliefs in our diversity, in our richness. We want to preserve our multicultural society, which brings generation of new ideas. We don't want to fight against each other. We want to, to smile to each other, to cooperate, to travel, to trade. And I was imagining such a is it utopic world? But I was hoping that the 21st century was heading there. And this was a big dis disillusionment when the war started. Well, I think we had a, a good period of time, maybe post-Cold uh, War, where I think wars were relatively less than what they had been in recent history. And, I'm, I, and in terms of your, your point about borders, I do agree as well. You know, there's a, quite frankly, if you go back far enough, there's a argument to be made that France should uh, run the entirety of Britain because of like the Norman kings. Uh, there's an argument to be made that Britain should r run a lot of France because of you know there's literally an area in France called Brittany for a reason. So actually, where a lot of the Celtic um, natives of like the, the actual Britons, not the Anglo-Saxons, landed. And so, if you could go, you can go down those rabbit holes all you like. At some point, I think you just need to set borders because the thing is with the EU, you talk about it being getting rid of borders. But in order to get rid of borders, they, they have to set borders within the nations of the country um, because, you know, to basically stop in fighting and things like that. And then on top of that, allow cohesion, freedom of movement, freedom of trade within those borders. So it's, it's both setting borders and relieving them in, in, in many ways. Um, and you talk about, you know, in, encouraging economic prosperity and things like that. And one thing that 
is being said um, and being talked about is the fact that if Britain had not left the EU, there is a potential that that are, well, not only on the inflation front, but also on the cost of living front, we would, the country would be dealing with it in, in a better manner, just because the freedom of goods and trade um, would have maybe mitigated the cost of living impact and things like that. Do you think that would have made a significant impact if Britain was still in the EU uh, when the pandemic had hit and in terms of its post-COVID uh, recovery? I, I, as an economist, I think that uh, the consequences of Brexit are are not favorable to to Britain, um, especially in the short run of three five years, but maybe even in the long run of ten fifteen years. This uh, is a major disruption that was introduced in terms of uh, legal arrangements, regulations, uh, supply chains. Britain did experience additional. Uh, cost of living crisis on top of the Ukraine war and on top of um, the COVID pandemic and uh, before that, the quantitative easing period of, of injecting money in the society. So there are many causes of inflation and we may be, maybe we shall move uh, later on to talk about what yeah. drives inflation. But to address your point, I think that Brexit is really, I hope this can be reversed sometime by the future generations because an open economy like Britain, it's not that much small compared to France or Spain, but in a global context, the United Kingdom is a small open economy. It trades a lot, uh, both importing and exporting products. And what I teach in international economics, what we know in international economics is that uh, the welfare of a nation with, with uh, free trade and with uh, some regulation, of course, um, um, would be uh, better uh, than um, trying to build some trade uh, barriers such as Brexit. Um, so I do believe that uh, not just on inflation, but there have has been effects of Brexit on the whole society in Britain. There will be a long adjustment process. We have seen how it works. There were some crises. Uh, around Brexit, for example, the pound depreciated a lot and the Bank of England had to intervene. Then we had this Listras episode, which was not consistent in terms of messages about fiscal policy, and that caused another trouble and the Bank of England again had to interfere and, and calm down markets. Um, it's unfortunate, I think, that um, Brexit was kind of self-imposed, self-inflicted. Nobody asked Britain to separate from Europe. It was a decision of the nation. I have heard these claims on the Brussels bureaucrats. I agree to some extent there might be some bureaucracy. Nobody wants to be uh, driven by decisions that are taken somewhere outside. But um, I don't think that uh, a small open economy relative to the global world, like Britain or France, if you want, or Italy would be better off if it's uh, not part of the European Union. So definitely Brexit has complex and um, long-term consequences that are researchers have begun to study these. It's hard to disentangle every single precise effect. Work has been done more and more. We get more and more light. There, are, there is research on the effects of Brexit in various dimensions. And we have experienced uh, this uh, 
problems, for example, this, this, the supply problems with fresh vegetables or fresh fruits from Europe or grain, or there were there was there was shortages of uh, truck drivers at some point. There were long delays because of the customs formalities once once the Brexit uh, regulations entered into force. So instead of just passing the channel without any formalities, you have to, for example, to block uh, a chain of trucks there and they stay for, I don't know, half a day or one day or three hours. And, and so there is delays. Then, uh, then the economy sometimes, uh, I know that a lot of um, the pro-Brexit propaganda was centered about immigration, about uh, those Eastern Europeans who come here and take our jobs. That's not, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. To some extent, it's true, of course, because we compete for jobs everywhere, especially in a European Union, which has no uh, limitations of, of the movement of, of workers. But on the other hand, the economy creates jobs. And if these jobs cannot be filled in by nationals or people who are local, then people have the option of immigration. This has been the... This has been the case with the gastarbeiters in Germany uh, in, in um, recovering, uh, rebuilding Germany after the Second World War in the 50s. And um, so to, to some extent, immigration is driven by, by the needs of the economy in a particular field, construction, for example, or agriculture or, or uh, hospitals. You don't have enough local people who would take these jobs. Maybe the salaries are not good, that much good, or maybe the qualifications that you need for them. Uh, people either do not want to work hard in the construction business or in agriculture, or they have different options. So in a sense, migrant workers often do a good thing for the economy. They also pay taxes, all these migrant workers. They, they, they give uh, some money to the budget and then the budget can spend for health, for education. So... Okay, it's Brexit is very complicated and the dimensions are many, but generally I do not think that uh, if Brexit hadn't happened, the United Kingdom would be in a worse situation than now. Mm. I, I do think it is important to note that we can't just solely leave the uh, the resulting inflation and cost of living crisis just on on Brexit, quite frankly. It was a culmination of a multitude of factors that just led to a situation where inevitably there was going to be inflation and a cost of living increase. We printed um, throughout the pandemic the most money that the, the UK government has ever done before, an unprecedented amount of money. Yes. And obviously, and obviously if you increase the supply of money over time, you know, the money has become, become less valuable and as such the costs of goods and services in the country go up. We've also, also had, as we've mentioned, the, the conflict in Ukraine and Russia um, and the importance of energy essentially has been reified. obviously. Um, when you go back to the, the, the 1970s with like the OPEC oil crisis, things like that, we haven't necessarily had such a, an impact for, for a long time and the importance of the cost of energy on the daily lives of the general public. Brexit, again, on top of that was another factor as well, but you know you can't just lump it at the, the steps of Brexit, although I would say it is limiting at least uh, the recovery of the country in the way it would like to. I think with Brexit, in the short run, it was always going to be worse economically. It was always going to, because you're going to have to detach yourself from a European Union. That's going to take time. It's going to take manpower resources that could be otherwise used elsewhere. You're not going to have free trade with your largest trading partner that you do over 50% of your trade with. 
you know, in the short run, that's going to take time and resources. The question was always, I think, whether in the long run we would have enough um, ability to increase the economy and use resources from creating trade relationships um, with, with other countries across the globe. Uh, that being said, I, I think, you know, as I said, Europe was always our um, greatest trading partner. I don't think that was ever necessarily going to be a positive outcome. But a lot of that question was also just wasn't economic at all. A lot of it was social, cultural yes. and political. People want, you know, migration was a big topic in that, but also cultural as well, taking back and just having greater autonomy over our own rules and yes. regulations. And so sometimes I think actually where I've come to down to it is... Yeah, if you were making a pure economical decision, it was never going to be <laughs> never going to be a wise decision. I think what you have to kind of settle on is the fact that it wasn't a fully economical decision, although it was partly was it was more of a cultural and a, a self autonomy um, perspective. I think as well, as well. But even if it was purely economical or economics based decision, what we teach, you know, in economics courses is that. Uh, most in economic policy, most in economic effects is a trade-off. You gain on some aspect and you do not gain on another. For example, generally uh, you may achieve a lower inflation at the, high, at the cost of higher unemployment, the famous Phillips curve debate and, and other debates in economics. So, so economics is a science which highlights that it's rare that it's a win-win situation. Usually, um, well, economic growth, if it's fairly allocated the distribution of economic growth to everybody, that could be a win-win situation. So there are cases of win-win situations, but also there are cases where there has to be some sacrifice, there has to be some trade-off. One comes at the cost of the other. And uh, so so it's a matter of a priority of a society, as you said, to decide through their democratic system of elected politicians, what is the priority now? Do we want to be independent of Brussels? Can we manage our country better than the EU? If you believe so, why not? And if you have the right politicians to uh, overcome the short-run short unfavorable consequences and turn them gradually into a democratic society which has uh, the right incentives to increase productivity and to and to uh, get richer that could be a, a good strategy if you if you in the long run if a country in the long run can um, can ensure this kind of uh, social and political mechanisms that that uh, produce a nation that is um, efficient and rich that's great what I only have against this is that I don't see the world as Unfortunately, I don't think that the world will be more prosperous if nations try to self-isolate fr from each other and try to, to become a particularly strong and powerful economy. I think the way ahead is more through cooperation and, and, um, and agreements, including, for example, the famous climate mitigation problem where well, we can't agree. We can't agree on a number of, of issues that are major, that are crucial for our world economy, including this uh, most famous climate issue where we have to kind of mitigate the climate change and we have to impose quotas or we have to introduce a common carbon tax across the world and nobody really does it. And moreover, this carbon tax should be uniform so that people do not have the incentives to go to the lower carbon tax to, to move their industries. So... I'm a bit uh, 
disillusioned because like 10 years, 15 years ago, I was a, a huge believer that, so maybe that's the impact of the fall of the Iron Curtain, the, the division of Europe between East and West, between communist and market economies was gone. And I was exactly at that time, I was just in, in undergraduate years at around the age of 20, 20 something. And so I experienced this moment as a young student and I believed that Europe is becoming um, modern, tolerant, uh, open, open-minded and I was believing that for a few decades, maybe one or two, and with Brexit and uh, with uh, especially the Russian war in Ukraine, my illusions are shattered. I, I think that we haven't learned enough from our previous experience and uh, we may the world may revert back to this nationalistic um, uh, mania of who is better, who is uh, the best economic performer or the... the 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 country that has a major say in in world affairs so conceptually fundamentally i do not see the world progressing much if we continue to stay divided if we create new divisions if we fight against each other i was hoping that the world has put that into the past into history and i was hoping that the world can achieve any next step which is important for the global economy and global politics through negotiating on, on the table of negotiations with certain compromises, with certain agreements, but uh, positively minded, not negatively, not, host, not, nurse, not, not nurturing hostilities and negativism, but rather trying to find the common ground. After all, our planet, we, we, we have the same common mother and that's our planet and we have to protect it. And, and uh, we have to, to be united, we have to cooperate, we have to think positively and not fight against each other, not cheat one another in, in, in the processes, in the, in, in the trends that are necessary to preserve life on the planet. And in terms of the EU itself, and I think we, we can move on to that this in, in, in a regard, what would be the implications of a country like Ukraine joining the EU? Um, economically speaking? I have two scenarios here. I can't be 100% sure that Ukraine will uh, join Europe. Uh, I think that no one has the right to prevent a nation to join a European, to, to join a monetary union such as the European Union. And the monetary union is, of course, the one of the stages in the gradual um, gradual progression of a particular trade union. So it starts with trade and then it moves to finance and then to common common currency such as the monetary union. So from what I read and hear after the invasion of Russia in Ukraine, it is likely that Ukraine will become uh, sooner or later part of the European Union. One problem of that is that Ukraine in territory is perhaps the biggest country in the monetary in the European Monetary Union, bigger than France or Germany, to, in territory. In population before the war started, they were something like 44, 45 million of people. Now they have 8 million Ukrainians that have fled the country, most of them in Poland and in the neighboring nations. So they have diminished their, their population hugely. 
And the benefits of you of Ukraine being in the European Union are of course related to the expansion of the trade opportunities, the production potential. Ukraine is a major a produ pro producer and exporter of wheat, of grains, of fruits and vegetables, of iron ore, of some other metals. So that would be a, that would be a benefit to to accept to to accept Ukraine into the common trading block of the European Union. The negatives, and that's what some of the bigger countries in the Union nowadays may not view very favorably, is that Ukraine is quite a big country. Uh, the same concerns uh, for many years, there have been argument uh, whether Turkey should be part of the European or not. And generally, the major concern there is human rights, first of all, uh, and democracy in Turkey. But also another argument is that Turkey is kind of too big, much bigger than Germany and France in territory and in population. This is like the argument you mentioned earlier about Russia. Russia is too big to be part of Europe. So I don't know. I, I see one scenario where Ukraine can be part of Europe. And maybe that's the desire of the Ukrainian people now. And if they want it, uh, I don't think somebody should prevent it. The other uh, issue is uh, given developments with the war in the future. We don't know how this will evolve in the next future and to what extent negotiations will be um, able to um, internalize what what is um, happening in, in the world on, on the battlefield, for example. So imagine that uh, at some point... Uh, Russia has these old Soviet claims. We need a buffer zone uh, between uh, NATO and, for example, the European Union and Russia. So, I don't know if if the if the war goes um, if the war develops unfavorably to Ukraine and favorably to Russia. One possible scenario is that the West and the European Union may concede. I don't know if that's possible against the will of Ukrainian people. Maybe it's not, because finally, I think the Ukrainian people should have a voice and should have a choice whether they join or not. But in a sense, it could be something that uh, the Soviet Union has demanded in the past when, uh, when the Second World War ended. In fact, Stalin, who was the general secretary of the Communist Party at that time, wanted a zone of influence. Uh, and that's how the uh, Eastern European uh, socialist bloc of countries was created as a, as a belt to protect Russia from a direct uh, um, direct um, possibility for um, for a conflict from some of these Western states. So if it comes to that, I'm afraid. I don't want to do. I don't want. I really do not wish Ukraine to be in that situation. I don't want Ukraine to be sacrificed for such a kind of buffer zone where neither NATO nor Russia has influence, but it stays like a buffer zone between the two. I think this scenario is less likely from what I observe now. And 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 then, as, as I said, I think that it's, it's, the, it's the say of the Ukrainian people to decide whether they would want to join Europe. If they want, they would have to apply. There is a particular application process. There are certain criteria. Over time, you, you can satisfy these criteria as, other, as any other country, in particular in Eastern Europe, that has been allowed to join the European Union. So uh, I think this is the optimistic scenario. I think, I think this, is, this is right for Ukraine uh, to be part of, um, of um, the European Union. 
and I don't see a big danger in, in, in uh, the politics of it. The politics, of course, would imply that Ukraine will have a solid weight in decision making because it's a big country, both in terms of territory and in terms of population. So generally, that would uh, limit the power of France and Germany or the other big countries in, in the Europe to, to kind of dominate decision making. But in so far, the European Union remains a democratic union and, and everybody has a say. And most of the decisions are taken with some qualified majority. I don't see a big danger of Ukraine be becoming part of the European Union. As to Russia, they would definitely not want that. Uh, for these political and ideological reasons, then I don't know what can happen to Russia. I perceived Russia after the Soviet Union uh, disintegrated in 1991. I perceived Russia as a democratizing country. For two decades at least, it seems they were putting efforts to 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 become a more democratic society. They marketized, they become a market, they became a market economy. Of course, it's arguable how much the privatization process there was um was um well, it was tricky to be honest with you. They obviously privatized in a way that they didn't it basically created a, a small set of very, very rich Russians that had the ability to basically come in, scoop up all the uh, the national industries that obviously previously nationalized um, and then make great money because they picked them up for a discount because quite frankly, Russia didn't want to open up the country to be invested from um, externally where a lot of the finance and investment would come from. And if they didn't want to do that, which I, I, can, I can understand from a political standpoint of maintaining control of your industries you know, nationally, but there was only a few selects of relative amount of Russians that could actually buy up that, and they've managed to buy up these indus industries um, at a fraction of what they were essentially worth. And then those industries grew, obviously, and that's why you get some of these Russian uh, billionaires like Roman Abramovich, for, for example, um, and why the country isn't made maybe as equal as it could have been. Yeah, that was my point, that the process of uh, Russian privatization was uh, quite distorted by this unfair kind of privatization where they produced the oligarchs, where they produced these several, I don't know, hundred or a little bit more huge millionaires and billionaires uh, who have this power now in Russia, whereas the, the common people, the, the people in the villages in Siberia, they're very, they're very poor, they're relative to what Europeans have um, generally. So I was thinking of, of Russia as a country that moves like Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, the Eastern Bloc, Czechoslovakia. I was thinking that Russia is just following up the same steps. Now with the war, I don't know. I still believe I have had quarters. I have worked with Russian quarters. I, I, I don't think all Russians are behind Putin. Maybe now they are not free. They cannot show any disagreement because that's dangerous. But I believe that, I don't know, is it half of Russia? I don't believe everybody is with Putin and with this, with his interpretation of the war in the Ukraine. So I don't know, uh, but usually in Soviet times, these dictators like Putin, at some point they die or there is some coup, coup, uh, palace coup and they are removed and somebody else comes to power. Now, if the guy who comes after Putin is a guy of... Um, 
democratic uh, and um, cooperative uh, intentions towards uh, Europe, it can just reverse the chain of events. I, I feel a bit... Um, I don't know how it would take, even if such a person comes that reverses the the chain of events and tries to to become friendly to Europe again, to trade, to to uh, build economic bridges and political bridges after Putin. And if it's backed by, let's say, three fourths of the Russian society, that's my optimistic scenario about Russia. I still believe that Russia has. Um, a solid uh, core of intelligentsia, as they say, intelligent, educated people, businessmen, uh, people of culture, who would not want to succumb in a dictatorship, who have appreciated this opening up of Russia. And so, if this is the scenario, maybe in 20, 30 years, Russia could be gravitating back to the European values. But if the guy who inherits Putin is like him, or even worse, then for, for several decades we may have opposition and contradictions and, and conflict, and that's not good. And, and I don't know, it seems according to surveys that 70-80% of the Russian population supports uh, Putin. I just think that it's a bit excessive. Uh, I can't believe that 70 or 80% of Russians can be behind Putin now. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think, well, first of all, Russia's future is very much deter is going to be hinged upon whoever takes power after Putin and what is their goals, their ambitions, whether it's going to be something similar, whether it will be going more democratic. Yeah, there's actually a lot of reports out there that says that Putin is rather unwell and actually could potentially, you know, die within the, within at least the recent the recent future. How much of that you want to believe, I don't know. But certainly Russia's future is going to depend massively on that next step in leadership. With going back to Ukraine, I think it is also important to acknowledge that although there are some benefits to, to Ukraine of joining the EU, that there could genuinely be some drawbacks from joining the EU as well. I mean, we've seen this with a lot of other European countries actually quite as well. If from the, For example, for yes, there is open migration and free migration and that's great because you can move to resources and get better jobs and things like that but it can cause for example something like a brain drain within the country all your academic skilled workers suddenly going off to work in either germany or france or these other places with great institutions where they can get higher wages and living standards are better suddenly all your skilled people are leaving the country and particularly as we've you know already mentioned Eight million people have already left the Ukraine because of the war. So they've, they've already got an issue for a very large country, a relatively small population base. Was it 40 million approximately, you were saying? That's, you know, two thirds of what the UK population is. And the UK has a much smaller you know, land yeah, mass size. Yeah. Ukraine is a massive, massive country ge geographically. It's a huge country. It's the largest country in Europe, I think, yes. ge geographically, if taking out Ru Russia, of course. And so they're already going to have an issue with having enough people to, in order to exploit economic growth and things like that as is, let alone with potentially joining the EU and having a potential brain drain of all your skilled workers out into other European countries as well. So there are important aspects that you do have to look at this. Now, the EU, in joining the EU, there is usually some sort of package 
that the EU puts together to help with situations situations like this investment into infrastructure, schools, programs. You know, and part of the reason, or at least the reasons we're giving for uh, Britain leaving the European Union was that we were paying out more to the EU than we were getting back in that, in that, in that terms of that reinvestment. Now it wasn't. 350 millions worth as uh, you know in terms of a net you know that uh some of the campaigns legislatively could be also got about 180 million of back that back but there was a net you know there was a net flow of funds in, into the european markets now you can say well that's positive or not i would say potentially is because you're creating infrastructure and networks that can create manufacturing facilities and industries that then can help facilitate the other European countries. But I think it is also important to note that, you know, it's not just a simple fix of, okay, Ukraine joins the EU, every, everything is solved. It, it could potentially actually have some very detrimental impacts and they, these do have to be taken into consideration. Yes, you're right. Um, thinking conceptually, fundamentally, long run, there might be solutions to such uh, migration problems because over time, you have some regions overpopulated, the standard of living declines, people move back to another place. So in the long run, there might be good fixes. In the short run, you're right. If a huge country like Ukraine compared to the rest of Eastern Europe is uh, accessed to the European Union, that would mean the displacement of population, brain drain, which you mentioned, but also... Um, some potential um, nationalistic sentiment uh, if, for example, Ukrainians come to France and start taking jobs. So, yeah, I know politically it's not, it's not an easy solution, but I think that that's why we have governments, regulation. There should be discussions of the, of the benefits and of the costs. There should be uh, some quantification, some precise calculation to the likely effects and there should be some decisions that are made democratically not in a dictatorial regime so yeah i agree there 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 are costs and benefits to uh, every eu expansion and uh, and that's why we have the role of policymakers to kind of evaluate the pros and cons and to take certain decisions which in the short run would eliminate uh, some tensions or conflicts. But in the long run, I think societies um, evolve in a way which um, allows them more more leeway, more freedom. And, and so there are trends, there are reversals. Uh, regions get rich, some stay rich, like London or Paris and these agglomerations. Others decline, for example, the coal, um, the coal mining, which uh, in Britain and in Germany and in other countries uh, developed some regions in the 50s and in the 60s now that's gone so people change to different kind of industries which give different advantages so i'm not that much concerned over the long run if ukraine is part of the eu because there will be natural tendencies in the population in the movements of the population in the rise and fall of different industries and centers that would generally adapt but in the short run, that could create uh, tensions, that could create uh, bottlenecks. Mm, absolutely. And just before we end uh, the session as well, um, at this podcast episode, I was hoping we could just briefly um, reflect on your research on long-run solutions aggregate in the housing systems between 1969 and 2017 in regards to UK 
real house prices. So if you could give us an overview of that research and your findings, that'd be fantastic. Right. So this is a paper I worked on with a now retired emeritus professor in the University of Reading, Professor Jeff Mean, who is the big capacity, I would say, in this country on housing. He has been advising government for many, many years. And uh, so he attracted me to the project and we had a common PhD student, Yehui Wang. We worked like five years on that project at least. And um, the idea was to build a theoretical model which takes a proper account of housing risk, which generally is excluded from both what um, governments do in projecting house prices. And this model would give us a better idea mathematically what matters, which are the important factors in determining housing prices. Now, to, to say, uh, to, to condense the message of our paper, why there is a problem with, with housing prices in, in the United Kingdom, I can just um, draw to refer to supply and demand. We know that in every market there is demand and there is supply and the price if, if prices are flexible, the price would settle to a level which will equilibrate supply and demand so that there wouldn't be stocks and that there wouldn't be shortages. Generally, the price would be established at a fair equilibrium value, which equilibrates um, the, uh, the demand and supply. That is valid in theory for every product. If we take housing, it's a very specific product. It's a long run investment. Uh, residential investment. So again, there, the main factors that drive the house price in, in, the, in the United Kingdom are housing demand and housing supply. From the housing demand, two things are very important. We have um, the elasticity of um, the housing demand to, uh, to income, right? As people get richer, they are inclined to pay and to buy housing, which pushes housing demand up, therefore had a housing price. The other important factor is the housing price, which acts in the opposite direction. So the, the more expensive is the house, the less will be the demand for the house. So on the demand side, there are these two uh, factors that interact. And quantitatively, and what we find in our paper, and it has been confirmed by other researchers even, even earlier, like, uh, for example, Muell Bauer and, and Murphy, 1997 for this country, and James Poterba, 1984 for the United States. So it all boils down to how sensitive is the housing demand to uh, increases in income, what is the elasticity in other words, and how sensitive is to, to the uh, price. And what we have uh, generally established is that one of the problems behind the housing prices, prices in, in the United Kingdom is that the um, Income, the income uh, elasticity of demand, which is positive, tends to be very high relative to other countries. For example, in the US, it has been estimated to be 0 0.75. In the United Kingdom, it's of the order of 2, 1.52. So there is a high income demand. People demand a lot of housing because they get richer. So that drives the housing demand up, therefore the, the price up. The price elasticity, by contrast, is unusually low in the United Kingdom. So it's of the order of minus 0.5, whereas in the United States it's double, minus 1. So on the housing demand side of the market, we have a strong elasticity, much more stronger than other countries, of income. So that drives the demand up and therefore the price. And the elasticity, the price elasticity compared to other countries is relatively low. 
On the supply side, there are two issues. First of all, there is what we call time to build. If you build a house, it will take several months, even years to, to build a house and to then sell it. So there are always, by definition in housing, there are delays in the response of supply to the demand. You cannot build, build a house overnight. So it takes some time, several years of delay. So that's the time to build. And then there is also this price elasticity of supply which uh, matters. So when we um, build the model and take this price, take these elasticities into account, it turns out that the price will generally tend to be higher and higher. You mentioned that for a particular period, which is um, 1969-2017, real UK housing prices have increased by 3.4% whereas disposable income has increased by 2.7. That's correct for this particular price, uh, for this particular interval in time. But I have here graphs which I, I have taken between 1965 comparing the same, the same um, indexes. And it's, it's not always the case. So generally, in, um, in um, different periods, we may have a sharper increase in the house prices relative to general to the general price level. In other periods, we have the, the other way round. So over time, they kind of catch up each other and they tend to be co-integrated. They tend to move together. Now, um, what we find in the theoretical model is that uh, because earlier models did not account of this explicit housing risk, housing is a risky investment. If you own a house, prices go up, prices go down. If you wait enough, two or, 30, two or three decades, you may find the right time to sell it or to buy it. But if you are constrained, for example, you have to move for a job elsewhere, you don't have this choice, this luxury to wait. So you may lose or you may gain depending on where the house price is in a particular moment. That's what is called in, in finance risk. So it's very volatile. The housing price is very volatile. And so this housing uh, housing risk should be taken into account when, when, it's, when house prices are modeled and when they're simulated. And once we take properly into account this housing risk, it turns out that uh, differently to what many people expected, especially before Brexit and before the global financial crisis, there was a very positive period of housing prices going up for about 20 years. So nobody really thought what mechanism could drive, uh, could drive housing prices back. And in, in our model, it turns out that this housing risk is depends on several factors. One of them is the housing uh, stock, so the value of the houses that are available. And the, the, the bigger the housing stock grades, the, the bigger the housing stock becomes, the bigger this risk becomes. And as the risk becomes higher, at some point there is a reversal and there is suddenly a housing price crisis. And we have seen several such episodes in the past. So generally the market has this um, natural mechanism which is unfavorable to us humans, but sooner or later, uh, the price uh, that has been increasing, for example, a decade or 15 years, sh drop shar uh, drops sharply for several months or even a year, and then it, it tends to go back and there is another cycle. So if we look at, at housing prices and inflation, and even GDP, we can see that uh, in, in the major market economies, everything is cyclical. Every five to seven to 10 years, there are some cycles. They are not, they are not uh, purely uh, ideal. They are not like a, an ideal uh, sine curve, 
but they are cycles which have different um, different um, amplitude as a period and different amplitude uh, vertically as deviation from the trend. So, so we can, e economists and financial analysts are trying to study this cycle, economic or financial, but it's not as regular, it's not as um, uh, pure as in a mathematical formula. A lot of things uh, influence it and it's, it's hard to make uh, very good predictions about the business cycle or about the financial cycle, including the house prices. So you talk about obviously like the house prices moving within this kind of relative business cycle. In terms of what actually causes those fluctuations or those cycles of house prices, you know, in proportion to wages increasing, decreasing, what are the actual root causes of that? Do we know or is it just something, uh, an, an effect that we're observing? Well, I mentioned that uh, if we get the big picture behind housing demand, there are two important factors. The richer we get, the more income we have, we would demand housing. And then the, if the price gets higher, we will demand less housing. And it quantitatively depends how much more would, would we demand if our income increases. And the elasticity here is high of the order of two. So that's called elastic demand. Um, and um, in the case of, uh, of the price increases, it's... Um, it's first a negative elasticity, so we decrease our demand when the prices goes up, and it's an inelastic response, so it's like 0 0.5. So because we much more, uh, because the housing demand quantitatively by this 2% of elasticity is influenced much more in the positive direction, that drives constantly the house demand to overshoot the housing supply. And the housing supply is okay, the, there are government programs that try to stimulate supply and match and catch up with, with demand, but it's not sufficient it's not sufficient the volume of new housing that is built even with government stimulus and programs cannot really match the increase of, of prices and of course there are regions where you know london is very much different from the north of the of the country so so regional factors uh creating wealth uh, matters because that increases the the income and therefore the, the demand for housing so uh on the, on the housing demand side, these are the main factors, the price elasticity and the income elasticity of the housing demand. On the supply side, this is the time to build. It takes time to build. And how responsive are um, construction firms to the increase in price? Because opposite to demand, of course, when the price increases, construction firms are happy to supply to a higher price. But again, it takes time and uh, the elasticity is not that high uh, as measured in the UK data as it is in, for example, in the United States. I also imagine as well that cost has a, a lot to play in this as well. So, for example, when interest rates are higher, borrowing costs and the cost of the house over the length of the mortgage is going to increase and the prices, like I say, increase, that means that you know less people are going to demand it. Um, but also, if uh, interest rates are lower, that means that you know it becomes cheaper for people to buy. Um, which means that, you know, if the site becomes cheaper, that means people demand more of it. That means people, you know, prices end up going up um, as well from that as well. And we have had a period in recent memory of very low interest rates relative, yes. re relatively as well. So, and interest rates at the moment are the highest they've been in a, at least in recent memory, but you go back, you know, a couple of decades, interest rates were obviously much higher, even up to, to you know, what, 15% per annum. 
is that's what need, is needed to help correct some of this disparity between the ratio of UK house prices to um, real wages, just an increase in interest rates, or is there something else that needs to occur to allow for a somewhat of a correction? So in fact, increases in real wages will increase demand for housing and that will drive housing prices even higher, provided that the supply cannot catch up. Okay. So as much as the supply cannot catch up, if there is some policy which can dramatically increase the supply to match the increase of house prices, which mostly comes from higher incomes and higher wages, that would be part of the solution. Uh, the other part of the solution, which is a market mechanism and which has negative effects on, on uh, usually on individuals who want to buy a house or who have a house, is these price fluctuations, these cyclical fluctuations. Again, it's uh, what you mentioned about mortgage rates and interest rates and the house of, and the price of the house is very interesting. It's relevant, of course, but you have to compare in a particular period you are and you consider buying a house. For example, your mortgage can have a lower interest rate as it was like over 10, 15 years ago. For, for That was unprecedented. We uh, have seen, we have witnessed the lowest ever interest rates at the Bank of England since its uh, founding. So for the whole history of the Bank of England, these nominal interest rates, which were close to zero for about a decade, that has never been the case. So if you have to pay a mortgage with that low interest rate, the mortgage can be with a fixed interest rate or can be with uh, two percentage points on top of the Bank of England. But whatever it is, if you had to pay a mortgage over this period, that's, that's a good luck because you don't pay a lot. So if you have bought a house at the peak of the prices in 2007, that's a negative thing, right? You, you bought a very expensive house. But if you bought with a mortgage, for example, tied to the Bank of England uh, base rate, and for 10 or 12 years, that was almost zero, you were lucky. So again, I was mentioning in economics that it's often about these trade-offs and, and uh, tendencies that go in opposite directions. And it's sometimes hard to say something general. You have to, in every individual case, have to compute when did you buy the house? What was the mortgage rate? It could be the opposite. It could be you buy a house at the low price when, when the market is at the bottom. But imagine then interest rates are 5 or 7%, as it was in 2007. Uh, the, the, as you mentioned, the Bank of England rate was above 5%. And, and that's generally the nominal interest rate historically uh, average normal levels are 3 4%. It's not normal to have a zero interest rate, rate and that's why we economists talk about this zero a lower bound of interest rate. And it's counterintuitive because you cannot go into a negative interest rate because that punishes savings. And again, when the interest rate goes high, that's good for people who have uh, lended and it's bad for people who have borrowed. In a society, you have both borrowers and lenders. And again, the social welfare of a society would take into account both people who lend and people who borrow. People who lend want a high interest rate they're rewarded high, people who borrow were low. It's not natural to have, unless very episodically, a negative interest rate because that punishes savers. And saving means investment into capital, human, physical. This means progress. So we are not going to, we are going to stagnate if there is no saving. We cannot expand production. So for that reason, saving is very important. I want to link that to inflation because, again, 
a little bit of inflation, 2% per annum as the Bank of England target, over time, not much volatile, but stable and low and stable, 2%, a little bit more, a little bit less, as it has been for about, again, two decades here before the recent surge in inflation. That's excellent. That's fine for society because deflation, when, when prices fall, is a worse curse than inflation. Low, stable inflation is like a, 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 the pulse or, or the blood pressure of a healthy individual. It's needed. Mm. A little bit inflation, low and stable, is good because when producers, producers see a trend of slightly increasing prices, they are happy to project, to plan, to invest, to produce, to sell. If they see their prices falling, they cannot recover their costs. They have to fire people. That's what happened during the Great Depression in the 1930s. People suffered from deflation, from huge unemployment. So again, I'm saying that low and stable inflation is normal. That's why the Bank of England has this target of about 2%. It's bad when inflation goes too high. And as you said, Brexit is not the only factor. Brexit is not that much important. Of course, there are... Um, there are cost push or supply side factors like the food crisis, the energy crisis that drive uh, inflation high because of the war, supply shortages as well because of COVID and people, um, so decoupled linkages between the chain of, of suppliers because we stayed at home, we worked from home and so not always these chain, chains of, of suppliers were, were, um, were maintained, uh, especially during the COVID years. You are right as well that for many years, Banks pumped, not just the United Kingdom, banks pumped uh, liquidity into the economy through this uh, quantitative easing. So economists were wondering since 2008, since the end of the global financial crisis, economists were wondering why inflation was staying low up to until very recently when it really surged. And part of this is, of course, the accumulation of, of um, pumping money over the years. So... In inflation and in mortgage and interest rates, there are a lot of counteracting trends that, that really drive these things. And, and often it is, it is hard to, to have a clear solution, even for a society. How much unemployment rate and how much inflation would the average uh, UK citizen tolerate? So we are lucky now with unemployment. We are unlucky with inflation in the last year. But before that, we had we had both low inflation and low unemployment. Unemployment currently is at its lowest over half a century in Britain, and inflation is at the highest compared to back to the 1970s. So again, if the priority is to fight inflation, the Bank of England has a, the Monetary Policy Committee has a meeting in two days from now. They may push a little bit the interest rate uh, a little bit higher. You are right; there were seven or eight steps so far. Um, a very sharp increase in the um, interest rate in the United Kingdom, but that's not just the United Kingdom. The same happens in the United States, the same happens in, uh, in the European Union, and this is driven by the same major concern to fight inflation now. So if we think that uh, the society backs, backs up the Bank of England and our major enemy now in this, in this country is inflation, let's, let's keep it low, then we'll go for a higher interest rate. That would hit mortgage payers. So again, there will be people who will we'll benefit from it, the lenders, but people who are going to lose from it. And op optimally, the, the policymaker has to take into account every such group and kind of weight them by their population and kind of invent, in, implement a policy, which is some sort of balance so that everybody is, is uh, happy to some extent.
So if we decide that because unemployment is at a historical low for, for 50 years, maybe it's the right time to, to lift the, the interest rates a little bit more and finish off with infl inflation in the next month or so. And then we can start declining the interest rate because the unemployment uh, situation now allows it. If unemployment was very high, like it has been in the past, uh, above 10%, uh, now it's about 3% or something, then then um, the, the march, the maneuver of the policymaker would not be that, that easy because then you, you have a high level of unemployment, you can't easily raise the interest rate higher. So uh, I just wanted to say that often we are blaming politicians or policymakers or the Bank of England or the Treasury for some unpopular decisions, but like fiscal consolidations. But in the long run, some of these unpopular decisions are well motivated. Mm. There is no free lunch at the end of the day. Yes, there is no free lunch at the end of the day. But talking about policymakers, I guess we'll just round out on this. If you had uh, the influence to implement one piece of macroeconomic or maybe not even macroeconomic, maybe just one another type of policy, if you were a policymaker, what's one policy that you would look to implement? Well, in the current situation in the United Kingdom, if I narrow down, because the question is otherwise very general, <laughs> I would, because of the arguments that I just exposed, I, I think it's the right uh, decision if in two days the Monetary Policy Committee lifts the increases the interest rate by, say, uh, 25 um, basis points or 50 basis points, with 50 basis points is half a percentage point. And the motivation is really that to, to, to continue this fight against inflation and the situation allows it because unemployment is fine. So in the, in the context of the United Kingdom, I would, uh, I would uh, defend such a decision of the Bank of England. And that's more or less what's happening in the European Union and in the United States. In a global context, I always expressed my per perhaps utopian views that that um, human beings should have learned the lessons of history with wars and fighting against each other. And I hope that we are closer to cooperating, especially with the long-term trend of globalization before the war, with the apparent democratization of Russia, which reversed at the end. So. That was for me the biggest disappointment. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I think that as early as from preschool and school age education, we should not, our textbook should not be written in a nationalistic spirit that, that glorifies our historical achievement and the great territories that a country has had. But rather, it should tell us, look, we are a multicultural society on the globe. That planet Earth is our mother. We are different. We are diverse. That's good because diversity brings ideas and the ideas bring technological progress. Let's preserve our diversity. Let's diminish conflict. Let's increase innovation. That is the point of this theoretical note I mentioned, uh, which is a discussion paper with my colleague uh, Masao Ogaki at the Keio University in Japan. So my hope for the long run future of society, of the globe, is that we switch to a kind of education of people which accepts multiculturalism. We don't have to, to fear Islam. We should, we should read in, the, in, in school, we should see that the Bible and, and the Quran are not that much different. They kind of tell the same fables in a different context and perhaps with some variations. But if there is God, if God has created us, 
I would think he would be equally concerned about white and 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 Asian and uh, Africans and uh, all sorts of of ethnic groups, all sorts of religions, all sorts of cultures. So my my belief for the future is that if if our policymakers, if our leaders manage to instill tolerance, respect, cooperation, we are fine. We are going to preserve our planet. That will have an impact on, on the ecological concerns because we will realize that we are killing the whole planet if we do not do something now. And we have to start to do it. And instead of fighting against each other, we should do something for our common planet. So I don't know if that sounds too much uh, utopian or idealistic, but I think that the I think that the root of evil is uh, is partly caused by this uh, sort of nationalistic history, nationalistic education that we have written, and our return to these glory periods in our history that we want to restore. That's, that's, that applies definitely to Russia now in the current situation, but it could apply to any other invader uh, in a different context. So I want to see the world a happier place, a smiling face, a, a place where people look into each other's eyes and, and uh, see what's the problem and try to negotiate and compromise and solve it and not fight. And I, I mentioned this problem of the borders. I think it's the time to forget about borders, to leave them in the past. Yes, there will, there will be short-run and long-run tensions, migration, brain drain you mentioned, but but I see no other way. I, I see no other way for the future. Otherwise, we risk to destroy the planet either through conflicts and wars or by not by ignoring the, the danger of a climate change. Well, even if it is uh, utopic, you need to have something to aim for and hopefully be optimistic about the future, uh, I would say. We need to need something to aim for. In regard, so thank you very much for your time today, Alexander. Is there any pieces of like research or books or materials that you'd like to drive people to or potentially the different projects that you have um, that are in the works that you'd like to let people know about? I think we discussed most of my, rec my, my recent project. I may send you a few links to them that you can put in the podcast uh, or some of, some of the graphs that I referred to. But apart from that, um, yeah, I thank you for the conversation. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I don't see anything uh, substantial that we have missed. Sure. Well, thank you very much for, for your time and thank you everyone for joining in. So until next time, um, enjoy. Thank you so much, Max. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for watching this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. If you enjoyed this content, please give us a like down below and comment what you would like to see discussed in any future episodes. But until then, see you soon.